Let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer this morning. Lord, <clears throat> we just come humbly before you today and admit our need for you. Um, there are things in our life that are overwhelming, that seem to be uh, bigger than we can handle, and we just trust uh, that you are in control of all things. Help us to, uh, even this morning, have a, a greater understanding of who you are, um, that you've revealed yourself to us is incredible. Help us, Lord, to rest and trust in what we know about you as we go through our lives. Help us to be people who are anchored in your word, uh, who are quick to tell others about Christ and what he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn to Genesis 28 as we start this morning. Genesis 28. I uh, was reading the transcript of an interview this week in which the person being interviewed was asked where they would start reading the Bible with a new believer. And always an interesting question, one that gets thrown out every once in a while. The person being interviewed admitted, hey, I know a lot of people say the book of John, right? That's generally where we think we should start reading the Bible with someone. Uh, they took a differing approach. They said, hey, I think we should actually start reading the book of James with someone, kind of interesting. Uh, however, after answering that question, this was uh, their follow-up statement to that, and I think where it gets relevant for us. They said, after reading James, as quickly as you can, get yourself to the Old Testament and start learning Genesis and Exodus in particular, because when we know those two books, then so many of the themes that are in those books are on repeat throughout the rest of the Bible, and it helps us be better readers of the Bible as a whole. I hope that's an encouragement for you today. Even other people realize that there is significance to reading Genesis and Exodus. You've heard me say this already, but these books really are the foundation for our faith. It is in those early chapters of Genesis that we know who God is. We learn about sin and God's requirements for humanity. We see the uh, foundation even of things like marriage in the book of Genesis. I, I've said this again already, but it is on like the opening pages of the scriptures that you are presented with a choice. Am I going to believe what the Bible says about the origin of the world? Or am I going to let secular culture or scientists tell me that this is how the world came into being? These books are of pivotal importance to us. And I hope that you see the relevance, uh, even for our lives, about reading about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, sometimes we read these stories like we did this week, and we think, well, that makes some nice junior church curriculum, but does that really have any bearing on my adult life as I go about day-to-day -day tasks and real responsibilities here? Does, does these guys' examples have any bearing on me today? I would say yes. It, it really does. You know, certainly there are some simpler truths in these stories. We, we learn that God is good that God is faithful, 
But I think that these stories actually articulate God's goodness and faithfulness even better than just a verse that comes out and says, God is good, somewhere in Ephesians or Romans. Because we have a story that demonstrates for us, that puts some color to it. Whoa, God really is good. He's faithful. I can see that. Every time I turn the page in Genesis, God is right there, faithfully um, coming to the aid of his people. Perhaps one more thing we could consider as an introductory comment today, that quote that I just mentioned was answering the question, where would you start reading the Bible with a new believer? Perhaps even in the reading that we've been doing thus far, now into February, is not just for our sake alone, but also so that maybe one day we would be equipped to read with someone else, to walk with them through Genesis, through Exodus, through the story of the Old Testament, and show them, listen, this is what God is doing. This is what he has done. Can I introduce or help you grow in your knowledge of the one true God? Anyway, that was all introductory. I thought it was just really interesting. Other people affirm the significance of uh, Genesis to the point that we should be reading it pretty early on in our walk with the Lord. With that, we pick up with the story of Jacob here in Genesis chapter 28. We left off with Jacob last week. His name means supplanter or heel grabber, and from the get-go, uh, he really lives up to his name. He comes out of the womb holding on to Esau's heel. And every time we turn around, Jacob is doing something else to cheat someone, to supplant them, to overthrow them, uh, beginning with uh, taking advantage of Esau's exhaustion. If you remember, Esau comes in from a, a hunt. He is absolutely famished. He says he's at the point of death. He just needs a meal. And Jacob conveniently says, well, you can have this bowl of stew uh, for your birthright. And Esau says, well, good to me is my birthright if I'm dead. So he goes ahead and makes that trade. And then a little bit later on in their lives, Esau is again out hunting, this time to receive the blessing from his father. And it's Jacob that puts the goat skin on his arms and on his neck and deceives his father and receives the blessing instead of Esau. Now, we'll come back to Jacob's sinful actions just a little bit later, but Esau is not without guilt in this story either. Sometimes we think that Esau is just a victim of his circumstances. He's always getting the short end of the stick because Jacob is just cheating him out of everything. However, the New Testament gives us a little bit different of a perspective on Esau and his choices. I wanted us to think about what the New Testament says here. It says... Would you mind clicking the slide for me, Hudson? All right. <laughs> In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this about Esau. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, there are some varying interpretations as to what this verse exactly is teaching here, but one idea is this, that Esau, in his exhaustion, made what we would call an impulse decision. He, he was famished, and he said, okay, I'll do whatever. 
And then later when the opportunity presented itself, a little bit later on in the story, and he found out that Jacob had been blessed instead of him. You remember he's crying to his dad, dad, do you have any blessing for me? And his dad says, I've already given it away. He found no opportunity to get that blessing back. The decision had been made. So if you're tracking with me here, this wasn't one of the questions on your sheet, but I'm curious, how should Esau's decision-making here be an example to us? We're looking at this verse. I just gave you an explanation of one of the interpretations of it. What is Esau's life or his example here? What, what, what could we learn from something like this, even what we see here in Genesis? Any ideas? Barb? Yes. Exactly, to pause before we make decisions. I think that's a great answer, not to just impulsively do things and then suffer the consequences for them later. Could I add one other component to this? What was true of Esau when he made this first decision to sell his birthright to Jacob? What kind of condition was he in? He was hungry. He was exhausted. He was at the point of death. And I think there is some scriptural just uh, implications for us today to think about this. We can be vulnerable when making decisions, when we are spiritually or even physically exhausted. Let me present just a scenario to you this morning. Imagine that you've had just a couple-week stretch where you've been, you know, exhausted at work, you come home, your relationships are strained, you find that you haven't been in the Word all that much, you haven't been fellowshipping with the Lord, your relationships at home, at work are strained, you're starting to feel the physical effects of it, you're starting to get a little bit sick, the sore throat and the stuffiness are coming on. How equipped are you in that moment to make a big decision? How likely is it that you're going to choose the right thing when under the gun like that? Not likely. You're exhausted. Your mind is going to look for the easy way out to pick the path of least resistance as Esau did. And the consequences that he suffered could not be undone. He made this decision here early on and could not get the blessing back. Let me ask you this. Do you think that it was coincidence that Jesus was tempted by Satan after 40 days of not eating? Sure seems like Satan was coming after Jesus even at a time in his life when he would have been physically exhausted and perhaps more susceptible to temptation. Again, in situations like this, we're tempted to choose immediate gratification rather than consider what might be the better choice in the long run. And like Esau, we might make decisions in our spiritual or physical exhaustion that have far-reaching consequences, where things where decisions are made and we cannot undo that action. I just thought of a couple. How many marriages have been ruined? Not because of some premeditated infidelity, but because in a moment of weakness, someone makes a bad decision. How, How many times are we exhausted and we don't watch what we say? We don't watch... Uh, what we eat, or how we treat other people, or how we parent, how we spend our free time. We are at a weak place sometimes physically. And I don't think it's any coincidence that here in Hebrews chapter 12, the author litters this whole section with encouragements to endure, to run 
the race. The text says, do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Here's an encouragement from the scriptures that maybe you didn't anticipate when reading this story. We must be alert even when we're tired. We must make good decisions. We must be cognizant of the fact that Satan likes to tempt people when they're at their weakest. He really is that roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and you and I cannot be like Esau in making a foolish decision that's consequences cannot be undone. And from this point forward in Genesis 28, we don't really hear a whole lot more about Esau. As we encounter this group of people called the Edomites, we should remember that their ancestor was Esau, and they are not kind to the nation of Israel. So keep that on your radar as you read about Edom and some of the strife that they have with the people of God. Esau is their forefather. From Genesis 28 onward, the rest of the story of the Bible is largely focused on Jacob. And that really is cemented in this promise that God makes to Jacob. If you're there in Genesis 28, I'm going to read verses 13 to 15, and I'd encourage you to follow with me as we look at it. Genesis 28, verse 13, this promise is made to Jacob, which says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And this brings us to our first question today. In Genesis 28, Abraham had been dead for at least 25 years. And yet here in these three verses, God extends to Jacob the same promise that he had first made to Abraham and also to Isaac. This language should be very familiar to you. We keep encountering this promise over and over and over again. What does the continuation of this promise teach us about God? What do we learn from God? Yeah, Claire. That he's always faithful. Always. That he's always faithful. Dave, I saw your hand up. That he's always true to his word. Brenda, what would you like to add to that? That he was always true to his word. Exactly. I said this last week, but think about this for just a second. If we made a promise to someone and that person passed away, how inclined are we to keep that promise to them? Depends on what it is, but we would think that that promise is probably void. We, we have no obligation to them anymore. However, God here makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham's been dead at this point for 25 years. He's extended it to Isaac, and now he extends it to the third generation in Jacob. God keeps his promise. Any other thoughts here about what this might teach us about God? I said this last week, but I want us to consider that God is the initiator of this covenant with Jacob. We've seen that Jacob is not really that nice of a guy in the, New, in the Old Testament. He's probably not the first choice of people that you or I would want to make a covenant with. Uh, maybe there's other people, God, that uh, would be more morally superior to him. But I, had I just remind you that God did not choose Jacob because he was morally superior. That had nothing to do with it. In fact, Romans chapter 9 provides this commentary on why God chose Jacob. 
In Romans 9, we're told when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And if you have an ESV Bible, the header over Romans 9 says that this is all about God's sovereign choice. God determines who will receive mercy. It has nothing to do with the actions of mankind. In fact, God chose Jacob over Esau, as the text says, before either of them were born, before either of them had done good or bad. Jacob received God's blessing at all. The only reason is because God was merciful to him, because God in his choice chose him. Our second question then, how, how does this revelation of God's character bring comfort to you today as he reiterates these promises to the patriarchs? What are you reminded about God? What comfort is there in knowing that God is like this? Any thoughts? Yeah. Bingo. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. We can trust him. If God breaks his word even once, what hope do we have of eternal life? If God cannot be trusted here in Genesis 28, why could I trust him with my eternal security? But if God consistently proves himself to be faithful and trustworthy, then we come to tomorrow and we say, I can trust God. This has relevance for everyday life. Any other thoughts? What else can we learn about God? Yeah, Barb. Yeah, God didn't just make promises to Abraham. He's made promises to us. We can trust his word for our life today. How about this one? In keeping with what I said a minute ago about God choosing Jacob, we would conclude that God is merciful. We've been coming after Jacob a little bit here, hopefully not, you know, coming down too hard on him. But really, we could replace Jacob's name with anybody and say, why did God choose Tyler? It's not because I'm awesome, right? Just a couple weeks ago, I was teaching the kids in uh, Kids for Truth, and uh, I said, hey, you guys might not believe this, but uh, Pastor Ty, he's also stolen, he's cheated, he's dishonored his parents, he's broken the Ten Commandments, and one of the kids piped up, I believe it. And uh, I was like, okay, I did not need that comment, thank you though. <laughs> but really, we have to be honest with ourselves and look in the mirror and see a little bit of Jacob in us and think, I'm not awesome either. God didn't choose me because I brought a whole lot to the table. God chose me because he is merciful, and he extends mercy to whomever he chooses. He looks down at rebels like Jacob and rebels like you and rebels like me and says, I'm going to do awesome things through you and for you because I am merciful. We didn't have a question from chapter 29, but there is some important things that happen here. Maybe you could turn there. You can just see by the header that this is where Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. Just a couple of comments here. When you read about Laban, he kind of consumes the next couple of chapters here. Jacob interacts with this guy, Laban. It is actually his uncle. Laban is his mom's 
brother. Isaac had also gotten a wife from the same place. Jacob flees there as he's running away from Esau, and he there interacts with his uncle, marries his first cousins in Leah and Rachel. And interestingly enough, there's kind of a an irony, if I could call it that, that takes place in these chapters here, where Jacob, who is always known as the deceiver, is himself deceived. Remember, he sees Rachel, he wants to marry her. Wow, she's beautiful, I'll work seven years for her. He does, that night, he thinks he's getting Rachel, wakes up in the morning, and it's Leah. And there's just kind of this turn of events here where even the deceiver is being deceived. And deception runs through Jacob's life. At the beginning, he is the cause of it. Towards the end, even his kids lie to him about what happened to Joseph. Deception courses through Jacob's life, and we can see the terrible effects of it. And even in this, there's a warning to us. Let's not let deceit, dishonesty, characterize our lives. This sin has far-reaching effects. It hurts people. It's, it's a terrible thing that we see played out in Jacob's life, this just rampant dishonesty. And as we move into chapter 30, it's the story of Jacob continuing to live with Laban. He's given Esau a wide berth while he kind of simmers down a little bit about trying to kill him. And it is while Jacob is in this foreign land that we see God's provision, God keeping his promise to Jacob. And I asked you, in what ways can you see God's provision in this chapter? There's two pretty clear ways, I think. If you could just give me one of them, one at a time, what ways did you see God's provision here? Kaylee. Sons. Yeah, that's a really good one. And the other one, what was the other way God provided that you saw in this text? Shane? Provide for Jacob even when Laban called him out of his house. Yes, specifically in the provision of those goats and sheep. Yeah, so let's take a second just to talk through these things. Kaylee said it already. The first way that God provides in this chapter is the provision of children or sons. And really this pattern begins back in chapter 29. But if you read the first half of, half of chapter 30 just casually, you'll think to yourself, well, this is just the record of all these ladies having children. Keep going. However, if you stop and look carefully at what's happening here, even the women recognize that God is doing something for them, that he is giving them sons. And I think that's captured really well in the names of their sons. If your Bible has footnotes, you'll see that a lot of these names are significant and they bring in the Lord on a handful of occasions. So for instance, uh, I believe back in chapter 29, when Judah is born, there's a little note in your Bible that says that his name sounds like the word for praise. And it was because Leah praised the Lord when he was born. So too with Joseph, his name sounds like taken away. And Rachel names him that because God has taken away her reproach. And it's not just that the women recognize that God is at work here in giving them children. The text openly says that God opens the womb. This is an area of life that God even has sovereignty over. When we have kids or when we don't, we know that this is from God. And then Shane mentioned it in the second part of that chapter. There's this really strange account that perhaps you like were reading it and you're like, what in the world is happening here? Uh, Jacob and Laban come to this agreement that all of the sheep that are speckled and spotted, all of those sheep and goats will be Jacob's. Presumably everyone that is, I guess, white 
would be Laban's, and Laban deceitfully takes away all of the speckled and spotted sheep and leaves Jacob with all the solid-colored ones. You know, and genetics would say that he's not going to have any speckled-colored sheep if he only has solid ones. However, Jacob takes these, like, sticks, and he cuts the bark on them, and the sticks look spotted themselves, and when he sees uh, the strong sheep eating, he puts the sticks in front of them, and they breed, and they have speckled and spotted sheep, and it's just like this strange story, and you're thinking to yourself, this is not how genetics works. Solid-colored sheep do not have speckled and spotted sheep. And maybe that's the point, that it wasn't Jacob's husbandry or shepherding prowess at work here, that God was working, maybe the impossible, in giving these sheep spotted and speckled offspring, advancing Jacob, even as Shane noted, when Laban was trying to deceive him. We'll read later that Laban like changed his wages twice. He kept backing out on the terms of the agreement. God is at work. Normally, these are rhetorical, these kinds of questions. I don't often talk about them, but I'm curious this morning if anyone would be willing to share maybe some of the ways that you have seen God provide for you in your life? Anyone just interested in, in sharing what they had written down and just given glory and praise to God for his provision for you as we've seen him do here in Jacob's life? Well, while you think about it, maybe I'll share what I wrote down. I still like stand back in amazement in how the Lord brought me here to grace. I was literally that classic, like, second semester uh, senior year student who had no idea where he was going to work after he graduated, where he was going to go. My prospects were, I guess, go back to Michigan. And I was talking to my dad one night just about maybe how stressed I was or how uncertain I was about my future. And literally, the very next day, I come to my work at university, and the guy next to me says, hey, you know anyone looking for a job? And I said, uh, yeah, me. And he says, well, I know this pastor in Drake. Let me get you connected with him. And I was on the phone with Pastor John that afternoon. And God brought me here so clearly to a church that I love, to people that I love. And he's provided for me richly these last couple of years. Can you see God's provision in your life? Anyone else want to share? Shane. looking for an internship and I couldn't find anything and no one would take it and uh, we got reconnected and the internship turned into a job and a job that I love and allowed me to stay here. Well, I was on the verge of moving back to Kansas. Wow. Barb. Financially, when the kids were little, things were very tight. You know, I was a single mother and, you know, I Natalie went to private school, good Christian and just, you know, I'd come to church and somebody would hand me an envelope or to pay the tuition and someone had paid it off for us for years. Just so many times I could go on forever. But yeah, I just just when I thought I was at the end of the rope, he kept making that rope longer. Yeah. Hand raised. Well I'll just say I, I think of Fred and John who mm -hmm. just lost their lives. And my wife is alive here. Mm -hmm. And during the time that she had pancreatic cancer that I was told 2% of the people survived. We 
committed to God that if she lived, he's good. If she died, he's good. And God provided my wife. She killed me. Brenda. Tell me. My husband and I were um, looking for a home to purchase, and um, we had really good friends. This is one of many times, but this is just one that pops in my head. Um, and our friends had had uh, one of our friends had lost their job and they lost their home. So when my husband and I were searching, it said one income. Um, we buy a home that one income can support. And uh, years later, my husband passed away. And it was one income that allowed me to maintain the home. But um, during that whole time, I was growing. And I'm just so thankful. That was just one of many times God blessed me in those things. Totally. Yeah, here's the point. We shouldn't read stories like this in Genesis 30 and think to ourselves, well, that's nice for them. God supernaturally intervened in Jacob's life and did something awesome for him, and then go back to the normal humdrum of our life, we should think to ourselves, I need to pause here and remember what God has done for me. Because it's not just these Old Testament saints that God works in their life. He works in ours too. And it's good for us to remember. It's good for us to give God glory for his goodness, certainly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also to all of us. Yeah, thank you guys for sharing. I appreciate that. We come back now to Genesis 31. And at this point in the story, Jacob's relationship is really strained with his uncle. Um, his cousins start accusing him of stealing all of their dad's wealth. It just feels very awkward, like, okay, this is not really a situation that I wouldn't want to be in for too long, all this family tension here. And we just see in this chapter God's provision, his uh, demonstrating that he keeps his promises. So really quickly, in verses 5 to 9, what does Jacob just observe about what God has done for him? Did anyone write something down there? Yeah, Claire. In spite of uh, Laban's injustice and the wage, exchange of the wages, God still allowed Jacob to prosper. Yeah. yeah, 
God still allowed Jacob to prosper, even though his wages were changed 10 times. Great answer. So the story keeps going. God tells Jacob, all right, time to go back home. Jacob does. He actually deceives Laban and even leaving. So, I mean, deception, like I said, just follows Jacob around like crazy. Uh, Laban starts pursuing him and is about to catch up to him until the night before he does. In verse 24, something happens where God provides yet again for Jacob. What happens there in verse 24? Cynthia. Yeah. up in a dream to Laban and says, tomorrow, you better not say anything good or bad to Jacob. Uh, he just kind of warns him a little bit, hey, um, careful what you say. And then in verse 42, I'll just go ahead and give you the answer to this one. Jacob says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And there's just this recognition on Jacob's part. God is with me. This is why I've been prospering, not because I'm an awesome shepherd, but because God is awesome. And so I wanted us, again, to apply uh, this truth to our life. Hebrews 13.5 contains a similar promise to the one that God made to Jacob when God tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I asked you, what are some of the implications or the yeah, what are some of the practical implications of this promise for your life today? As you think about that, what comfort or thoughts come to mind? Anything? Well, contextually, here in Hebrews 13:5, the whole verse says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. There are times in our life where we start looking around and we start comparing ourselves to others and we think, oh, this person has this, this person has that. I have none of these things. My life must be pretty terrible. God must not be providing for me. When we make these comparisons, we're forgetting that God has promised us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And that should help us to be content. God made this almost exact same promise. I think he did make this promise to Joshua as he's taken over for Moses. And he tells Joshua, I will not leave you. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And reflecting on this promise here just brings a certain amount of comfort to us, knowing that God will never leave us. If God comes to Jacob's aid when everything is against him, will he not also do the same for us? As Christians, we expect to be on the receiving end of injustice. We expect for people not to like us that much, for uh, just to be on the receiving end of some unfortunate things. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know God is with us. I'm kind of reminded of uh, Romans 8, uh, it says something like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, just some awesome promises here from Genesis 31. We'll keep moving, though, on to Genesis 32. Jacob obeys God. He starts making his way back to his homeland. It's been 20 years since he last saw Esau, and last he knew, Esau wanted to kill him. So there's kind of like this tension here, like, okay, how is Esau going to respond? So he sends all these people ahead to Esau to let him know, hey, I'm coming back, kind of testing the waters a little bit. And uh, the report comes back to him that Esau has gathered 400 men and is making his way over to Jacob. Now, 
Jacob doesn't hear this and think, oh, what a nice welcoming party. My brother Esau is just coming to say hi. No, he thinks to himself, uh, this is a war party, and he is coming to wipe me out. So he, he is like incredibly distressed and anxious. Uh, it's just kind of a, <laughs> a very like precarious time in his life. And yet Jacob gives us a great example of how to respond during these times. What does he do in verses 9 to 12 that is just so instructive to us when we're faced with a similar set of circumstances? Dave. He asks God to help. Yeah. He just pauses and he prays. He asks God for help. If you're in chapter 32, let me just read verses 9 to 12 because I think it's, uh, there's some stuff for us to learn here. In verse 9, Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I think there's some really interesting stuff going on in this prayer here. First of all, I think Jacob demonstrates a humility here in coming to God and saying, Lord, I cannot deliver myself. I need you. I appreciate that Jacob actually remembers the promises that God had made to him. And he says, do you remember what you said to me? Will you make good on these promises here? I think Jacob's prayer is instructive to us that when we encounter hard times in life, our first response should be to pray. I read an article just this week in which a lady who wrote it said that she received um, a really bad medical diagnosis about her son. And on the day that she received that news, she did not pray for five years. I realize that life is hard, that grief can overwhelm us, that there are times I'm sure we feel numb, we feel alone, we don't really know what to do or how to process this, but I just think about this lady and the story she tells, and I think to myself, why not come to the Lord with a problem like that? Why would you deprive yourself of coming to the one who knows all things, who made all things, and who can actually intervene in your life and do something about it? Can we not practice what Peter says of casting all our cares on God because he cares for us? I think Jacob's prayer and his posture in prayer here is really instructive for us. There's something that happens at the end of Genesis 32 that puzzles me. As I read about it, it puzzles commentators, and that is this event in which Jacob wrestles God. Maybe it wasn't puzzling to you. Hey, that'd be awesome. I read it, and I'm like, I, I'm really struggling with what to take away from this. And I'm reading people much smarter than myself, and they're not even sure what to do with it. There's a lot of speculation here, which we're not going to get into. But I will say this, that it is at this moment in Jacob's life that his name changes from the heel grabber, the supplanter, to Israel, 
one who strives with God. And from this point forward, Jacob's descendants are known as the people of Israel. It's a really pivotal time in Jacob's life. Uh, You know, feel free to look into it more yourself, but I'm honestly still a little confused about the whole event and, and what it means in Jacob's life. So, we come to chapter 33. We're going to do these questions a little bit out of order here. Records this reunion between Jacob and Esau. Jacob sees Esau coming. He starts bowing himself to the ground seven times, showing this posture of humility. You know, not really sure what Esau's going to do. Esau actually runs towards him, hugs him, weeps, kisses him. It's this beautiful picture of reconciliation. One commentator actually pointed out to me that it actually sounds a lot like the return of the prodigal son. Like the father runs and initiates some of that uh, restoration there. So too does Esau return to Jacob. And we can't be so naive to think that we also don't have conflict with other people. It's not just these two brothers in the Old Testament that had a little bit of a tension between themselves. So too do we. And I asked you to consider what Ephesians 4.32 requires of believers who need to be reconciled. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I know that when people wrong me, I'm probably a lot like what Esau, or excuse me, what Jacob thought Esau was going to be like. I, you know, am very inclined to make people pay back for their wrongs against me, to treat them differently. And this verse just kind of smacks you upside the head a little bit and reminds you that you were once the offender. You were once the problem, but God in Christ forgave you. So that should make it a whole lot easier for us to know, hey, I've been forgiven a lot. When someone offends us, we say, hey, I can forgive you too. I know the forgiveness that I have received in Christ. Uh, The next question from this series of verses. I I just was interested if any of you wanted to comment on the change that you've observed in Jacob's life throughout the book of Genesis, specifically contrasting uh, the beginning, you know, cheating people out of the birthright with him being reconciled to his brother here in 33 and in 35, he has some good things as well. Anyone interested in just giving me your own comments on Jacob's life or what you observed here? Yeah, Timmy. Yeah, I think you made a really nice summary statement there. You can just see God working in his life over the progression of his younger years here towards the end of the story. God's at work in his life, and it would be good for us to pause and just realize, like I said already today, maybe in some ways we're a lot like Jacob, but we should be able to look back over the course of our lives and say, yeah, I have seen God at work. I am not the same person I was five years ago, not to any credit of my own, but because God has been working in me. As we conclude, I really wanted to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because I think it puts a nice bow on the story of the patriarchs. So turn with me really quickly to Hebrews 11. We're not really going to be talking about these guys a whole lot more in the coming weeks. So this really is our chance to just get like a conclusory statement about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
I'm sure you could already assume that we are going to consider their faith, and you would be right. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, we're going to read a lengthier chunk of scripture here. We read this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jump down to verse 13. Speaking about the patriarchs, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this passage of scripture just reminds us of the faith of these men leaving their homeland, living as nomads, as strangers and aliens in this world, and longing for a country, longing for a homeland, not one made by human hands, not a physical location on this earth, but looking to that city whose designer and builder is God's. And that kind of example demonstrates to us what we should be like. Similarly, we too should be nomads and strangers and exiles, not getting too comfortable in this life, but looking ahead towards the next kingdom and living for it by faith. Let's go ahead and pray as we end. Lord, thank you so much for the example of these men and the testimony of your word to our life. As we just reflect on some of the things we've learned, help us, Lord, not to be like Esau and make impulse decisions that are rash and have far-reaching consequences. Help us to be alert and on guard to temptation when Satan would love to strike and derail our lives. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.